You're listening to the Scale and Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Chester Elson. He's a number one New York Times bestselling business author and an organizational culture, employee engagement, and leadership expert. He's been called the Apostle of Appreciation by Canada's Global Mail, Creative and Refreshing by the New York Times, and a must-read for modern managers by CNN. Chester is co-author of the multiple award-winning best-selling leadership books, including All In, The Carrot Principle, Leading with Gratitude, and Anxiety at Work. His books have been translated in 30 languages and have sold 1.6 million copies worldwide. Chester's often quoted in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Fast Company, and the New York Times. He's appeared on NBC's Today, CNN, ABC, MSNBC, National Public Radio, and CBS's 60 Minutes, and now also on the Scale and Culture Podcast. Also, Chester is the co-founder of The Culture Works and a board member of Camp Corral, a nonprofit for the children of wounded and fallen military heroes. He serves as a leadership consultant and coach to firms such as American Express, The World Bank, Zooks, Momofuku, and the New Jersey Devils of the NHL. In this episode of Scale and Culture, Ron and Chester discuss what's driving Chester to write these books, the random act of kindness and the ripple effect, anxiety at work, and strategies how leaders can spot it, normalize it, and make it safe to talk about, and gratitude stones, humility, empathy, vulnerability, mental health, and how to lead with gratitude. This episode was sponsored by Empyrean, a top-tier HR technology company that empowers organizations to build a better culture by connecting employees to meaningful, life-enriching benefits. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett, and today I'm very, very excited to have Chester Elton with us. Chester, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure, Ron. Delighted to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you again. Yeah, always fun. So, so, Chester, we, we did a full uh, intro, but I know you go by the Apostle of Appreciation. What is, I love that. What does it mean? Break that down. <laughs> so Adrian Gostick's my co-author. We, we've been writing together now for over 20 years. And um, the first seven books we wrote all had carrot in the title. You know, it was all about a recognition and appreciation. Well, our seminal book is called The Carrot Principle. We published it with Simon & Schuster and did very, very, very well. And Adrian and I both grew up in Canada. So the Toronto Globe and Mail, which is Canada's largest newspaper, did a review of the book. And the reviewer called us, said, Gossick and Elton are the apostles of appreciation. And we liked it so much, we just kept it. You know, it's always better for someone else to give you the title. Um, right. I, I will tell you, Ron, another title we got that we didn't keep, but it was just clever, was a guy called us the the Dalai Lamas of workplace traumas. <laughs> of, that actually rhymes, of workplace traumas? Oh, that's yeah, good. no, it was, very, it was very clever. It was very clever. That's kind of a rap song. I like that. That's very yeah. good. So, Chester, I want to I kick off, you know, again, Maddie's done a phenomenal intro of you, but, but give us just an insight, a deeper insight of who is Chester Elton? Well, that's kind of like asking somebody, what's the meaning of life, isn't it? I mean, that's- well, that's going to be next. Be next. <laughs> so prepare nice. yourself. You know, um, great question. I, 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 I'm, I'm the son of John Dalton Elton and Irene Tanner Elton. Um, you know, I just spent some time with um, three of my older brothers, we went on this boat and, uh, bike and boat trip in, in the Netherlands. And it's, it's so interesting that I grew up in a family with five boys and I'm the youngest of the five boys. 
And when we talk about our identities, it's really interesting. It always comes back to our dad. Uh, my father, John Dalton Elton, was just remarkable in so many ways. He had a beautiful bass voice. He sounded like Bing Crosby. My mother played the piano for him. He was quite the entertainer. He um, he ran radio stations. He, he he was he started as an announcer, and then he got into management. And um, my dad was just one of those guys where. After being with my dad, you felt better about yourself as one of the best ways to describe him. You know, some people you meet, you meet them and you say, boy, they're the most interesting people, person I've ever met. After you spent time with my dad, you'd say, you know what? I'm the most interesting person I've ever met. I mean, he wow. just had a way of making people feel good about themselves. And so that's the way I grew up. You know, I tell people I grew up in a ridiculously happy household. Uh, my parents were married for 65 years. I never, ever heard my father raise his voice to my mother, ever. It was one of the great love stories of all time. I'll, I'll share with you. And this is very much who I am and my older, and my older brothers. I'll never forget, I was sitting in, in church with my dad one day, and, and my mother uh, was a model. She just always dressed to the nines and dressed my dad to the nines. They were always, you know, well turned out. And my mother walked into the room, and my dad nudged me, and he said, Chess, Look at your mom. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she talented? Aren't we lucky? Wow. And I never forget that. So my wife and I just celebrated 39 years. And every time I see my wife, I think, isn't she beautiful? Isn't she talented? Aren't I lucky? That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I, you know, you know, this is the scaling culture podcast, but this is interesting. <laughs> we have to kind of veer to, I need to, dive a little deeper into a few things you said. One, I have a question, um, and this is more maybe on your childhood and your comment about your father never raised his voice at your mother. One my first question is, did he raise his voice, but not in front of you? Did he raise his voice, but did you not see it? Were you insulated from that? I don't know. Don't know. I, I don't think so. If you, if you asked me to place a bet in Vegas, I'd say no. It just wasn't his nature. Wow. Interesting. Because you know, I go back to um, I go back to my relationship with with my wife, and she would say the same thing about her parents. They did a phenomenal job in in not arguing, um, bickering so much in front of her when she was when she was growing up. And when we had our first dispute, our first argument, she really thought that that was dysfunctional. Now, I grew up in a different uh, you know in a different household where where you know there was different levels of dysfunction. I'll call it. And so, what I said to her is, well, you know, I think that your parents probably did argue, just not in front of you. And so I, I'm, I was curious when you said that, you know, was, did your dad say, but son, you know, you're probably going to argue at some point and here's how you should maybe have a compassionate argument. Was, was there programming teaching around that, that does happen? You know, there's a difference between, you know, raising your voice and, and conflict and argument. I mean, they argued all the time. They, they, they just never yelled at each other. It was always just very civil. You know, I'll tell you, um, you know, we would have various family reunions. And I remember that five of us were sitting there together. And the question came up, what was the greatest lesson dad ever taught you? And it was my brother, Kim, who's the middle brother. He said, you know, I think the most valuable lesson dad taught us was how to love your wife. How to love your wife. How to love your wife. And it doesn't mean you don't disagree. Of course, you're going to disagree. Of course, there's going to be conflict. The thing is, you figure it out. 
And it doesn't have to be nasty. You don't have to raise your voice. It's a problem to be solved. Solve the problem. I, I totally love that. It sounds easier said than done, but I love oh, it, by the way. Right? Absolutely. I mean, are there times when you've wanted to yell? Of course. Where's your punching bag, Chester? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. So I want to go back to another comment. Um, people would have thought they were the smartest person after meeting my father. They would have felt better after meeting uh, about themselves after meeting my father. What did he do? Bring me in the conversation. How did that happen? Yeah. You know, what did we learn from that? Dad was really interesting, and he, and he definitely passed it on to us. Is that Dad was very curious, you know, and he loved people, and he he loved to hear your story. And and I found you know in our work, um, in culture or leadership, and particularly in our latest book, Anxiety at Work, is you know one of the biggest causes of anxiety is uncertainty, like I don't know what's going on. Well, one of the greatest attributes of a leader is is simply be curious about your people. Do you know where they came from, how they got here, what, what, what they want to accomplish while they're here, and where do they want to be three to five years from now? I mean, knowing people's stories, I think, is a very powerful way to lead. Because, you know, you're going to manage me a lot different than you're going to manage you. We, we, you know, the old adage, we, we treat everybody the same because that's fair, is, 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 is stupid. You don't treat everybody the same. It's not fair to treat everybody the same, you know? And so we, we talk a lot about um, healthy cultures as a place where I believe what I do matters and I make a difference. And when I make a difference, somebody noticed it and celebrated it, you know, the power of the carrot of gratitude. Well, the way you reward people is different depending on their background and their interests and their passions. The way that you lead people is different. You know, we, we learned a great lesson from a, a basketball coach in uh, East Orange, New Jersey, uh, Billy Lovett, William Lovett, and remarkable leader. I mean, inner city, it, it, you know, and you want to see passion and you want to see great basketball, go, go watch inner city basketball because these kids just, it's, they, it's all they think about. They fly to the ball. And the great thing about Billy is that every one of his kids went to college. Every, and, and in many cases, they were the first kids in their family to go to college. And it was so interesting. And, and so um, I was mentoring the, the point guard for the, you know, East Orange Campus Jaguars, you know, Jeffrey Duveston, number three in your program, but number one in your heart, right? I mean, he, he, was, he was our kid. And we cheered for him and laughed and, and we would follow the game. So I, we were at an away game and there's Coach Lovett and uh, his three-point shooter was off. So he calls a timeout. He pulls him aside. He puts his arm around. He says, hey, listen, Aaron, don't worry about it. Have a seat. I'm going to need you. The kid was great, right? Sits down. Well, five minutes later, he calls a timeout. He grabs his power forward and he just starts screaming at this kid. I mean, Ron, uncomfortable. I mean, it was a small gym. There weren't many people there. I mean, this was tear your face off a moment for this kid. Publicly. Oh, yeah. So after the game, I went up and said, hey, coach, quick question. Two players. Is that fair? And he, he looked at me and he laughed. He goes, hey, you got to know your players. He says, my, 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 my shooter, tender soul. I can't tear his. He'd never show up again. He'd, he'd never make another shot. That other kid, it was so funny. He goes, he, he a knucklehead. He a knucklehead. <laughs> he goes, if you don't say, that's the only way to get through to that kid. I said, by the way, did you notice when they both went in, they both played great? 
I went, yeah. He goes, know your players. So long story to get to the point that, you know, know your players, know their story, know, know, know how to coach people. Some people you, you, you need to be tough. Other people you need to be tender Agreed. and great leaders know the difference. And I agree with your other comment before too, you know, the, the other adage, the, the, the golden rule, treat people as you would like to be treated is flawed. It should be treat people as they would like to be treated. Right. Yeah, That's what you're yeah. talking about. My, my dad's taken the golden rule was the guy that has the gold that gets to make the rules. And, and he said, and just don't ever forget that. <laughs> right. Good point. Yeah. And, and so let's go back to the books. You, you've got, you know, your last two books, leading with gratitude, anxiety at work. Um, those are your latest, correct? Yeah. What's, what's even before we dive into the books, Chester, what's driving you to write those books? It feels like there's these lessons from your father that you've adapted one to share them with the world, but what, why are, what's driving to write and, and push these messages out there? You know, great, great question, Ron. Um, Adrian and I are both very passionate about creating just great places to work. You know, again, where I, I feel like what I do matters, you know, I'm emotionally engaged. I, I'm rewarded for my, my hard work because we've all had jobs where that's not the case. And what, really bothers me about those workplace environments is the ripple effect. The fact that when you are miserable at work, your odds of being miserable at home and making your family miserable and everybody that comes in contact with you miserable go way up. And the opposite is true. And that's the ripple effect that we're really focused on is that, you know, when you send your people home happy, when work is engaging and rewarding, you think you're making a difference. Well, you know, you're making a difference. And you share that with your family, it's the tide that raises all ships. You know, it's it's interesting. I have this little tradition. Um, I put these little gratitude stones in my pocket. I know this is a podcast, but you know, it's I love it. It's a yeah, it's a little polished stone. It says gratitude on it. I always keep a couple in my pocket, and whether I'm at a gas station or I'm flying or anywhere, and somebody does something great, I said, hey, by the way. Thanks so much for great, the great service and really taking care of me. I got a little, I got a little gift for you. And in a lot of cases, oh, sir, we can't take tips, you know, whatever. I said, it's, that's not it. <laughs> I said, it's a rock. Yeah, it's a, it's a, seriously, it's a rock, right? I said, it's a little gratitude stone. And I just want you to have it because I really appreciate, you know, you, you really took care of me. It's clear that you, you, you love what you do. It's important that what you do. And then I say, and do you know why it's a stone? And they go, no. And I said, well, when you throw a stone in the pond, what happens to the water? They say, oh, it ripples. I said, yeah, just like gratitude. And they go, oh, that's good. Yeah. And, and so my, my point is, is that we're passionate about what we do because you spend so much time at work that if you can make that engaging and rewarding, you can make lives engaging and rewarding. You can, you, you're a better father. You're a better husband. You're a better neighbor you know you're a better friend uh when when you're happy you know i i think that one that's a beautiful story i think i'm gonna i think two things actually i'm going to order a lot of those stones i'm going to save <laughs> a lot of money but i'm going to make a lot of people happy i am going to pass on gratitude but save money at the same time absolutely so, I mean, more tips but but no but seriously that that's beautiful it, it's beautiful i mean you know you think of the the simplicity of that right of you could have easily tipped that person $5. Fine. They wouldn't take, they couldn't take, but they finally take it and nothing changes. No story, the story and the impact of what you've done there 
should entail ripple because there's no way I would bet if I was in Vegas betting that person tells a story, they tell the story and not just once. And they don't yeah. just show the rock once. Right. You know, it's so funny. I was, I was on a flight and th this flight attendant was just, I mean, taking care of everything and everybody and a big smile on her face. And, you know, I caught her in the back and I said, Hey, she was, Oh, I love these. I've got, I've got a rock that says peace. I've got a, a rock that says humility. This is going to fit right in, you know, or, um, you know, um, performers and whatnot. And he says, Hey, I'm going to put this right near my, you know, stand. And, and, and people do, like you say, and, and isn't it interesting, the power of a story, you know, back to, Hey, what's your story? If I'm your leader, I should know your story. Where'd you right. come from? How'd you get here? Where do you want to go? So high level, let's go to anxiety at work, because I think it's, you know, um, I think it's it's an elephant in the room in some cases, right? I think that a lot of leaders don't want to talk about it because they believe that the discussion about what's causing anxiety could be crossing the line, could be driving drama, whatever it is, right? What, what do you think generalizes causing anxiety at work? Is it back to what you said on just uncertainty? What's What's causing anxiety? I, there, there are a lot of factors uh, and we took a really deep dive. Now I, I, you know, I love all that preamble because the, the reason we wrote this book was because of uh, Adrian's son, Anthony. So I've known Anthony since he's six years old, you know, I've known him for 20 years and always kind of an anxious kid. And it was so funny, you know, we, we, we launched leading with gratitude, which by, by the way, is our favorite book uh, of all the books we've written. And we've written 14 now. That's my favorite. And Adrian's favorite, our most important book is Anxiety at Work. And it's because of Anthony, he said, you know, you guys talk about leadership and culture. Do you ever talk about mental health? Do you ever talk about anxiety? Went, oh, no. Come on. You know, our generation, rub some dirt on it. Turn that frown upside down. Come on, suck it up. You know, we wouldn't talk about mental health because why? You'd be perceived as weak. Real, real men, real leaders, they're not anxious. They, they, they power through, you know, and he said, you know, exactly, exactly. We all die young of ulcers, you know, bleeding ulcers. Anyway, um, he said, you know, you oldies never talk about it, which I appreciated him calling us, you know, oldies. He said, my generation, we start every conversation saying, how are you doing? And what we mean by that is, how's your mental health? Because, right. you know, to, to use the Disney analogy, my generation, we don't talk about Bruno. We just don't. This generation, that's all they talk about. And, and when you look at the future of business, you look at the future of leadership, you got to address it. Now, I'll share with you some numbers just really quick, because we said, OK, OK, we'll take a look. You know, if we find it interesting, maybe, you know. Well, pre-pandemic, about 18 percent of employees said they had an anxiety disorder. So one in five, call it one in five. Um, by 2022, that's 30%. That's a huge jump. Employees in their 20s, it's 42%. It, you're, you're approaching half. These are your, this is your bench. That's These your workforce. Exactly. And then get this, 50% of millennials and 75% of Gen Z said they have left the job due to a mental health issue. So it doesn't mean that they're not capable, not competent, not smart. In fact, I guarantee your top performers, guarantee you they suffer from anxiety and always have, by the way, just really good at hiding it, right? So we, we took a look at it and said, well, isn't that interesting? Because if 42% of your workers in their 20s showed up with a broken leg, boy, you'd be all over that. 
You say, what the heck's going on? And yet there's still that stigma. So in the book, we took a deep dive into eight strategies, how you deal with it, how you spot it. The, the, big, the big three, though, is for leaders is how do you normalize the conversation? It's just like a broken leg. How do you destigmatize? So, so just the issue? how do you make it safe to talk about, right? Exactly. And then thirdly, how do you empathize? You know, five years ago, Ron, if you said, what are the attributes of a great leader? I'd have said, great communicator, motivator, you know, visionary. Right now, look, if, if, if you don't have a big dose of empathy, doesn't matter. Your people have to believe that you care about them. You know, I, I was at a, speaking at a conference recently. We were doing all these workshops and stuff. And I said, so uh, how long have you been here with this group? She said, oh, just, just about a year and a half. So where did you come from? She mentioned the company. I said, well, why did you make the switch? She said, because I went to my boss and we were doing really well, really successful company. And I said, listen, I've got somebody on my team that has lost wait for it, five members of her family to COVID, five. She's burned out. She needs some time off. She, I mean, she needs to go to funerals. And my boss said, yeah, I get that that's hard. We got a deadline. Can you make sure she's back by Monday? Ouch. And, and she said, at that moment, I decided I'm out. I'm out. And, and she said, look, it wasn't that I didn't love what I was doing. I did. And I did love my team. I just didn't like who I was doing it for. She goes, now I'm at this new group and they actually care about me. As a person. As a person. Mm -hmm. And not just my immediate supervisor, right from the CEO all the way down. You know, how are you doing? How are you taking care of yourself? You're putting your oxygen, oxygen mask on first, you know, the old analogy. And, and we're killing it. And I'll never leave. Now, she might get a new boss and that might change. My point is, is, you get smart people, you want to develop them and you want to keep them and you don't want them to quit because by the way, if it's not safe to talk about mental health, it's easier for me to quit, take a couple of weeks off and just go find another job. Absolutely. But Chester, are you saying that empathy through communication drives safety? Break down the safety part. How do you get people being that comfortable to say, look, I'm struggling with my mental health today, which is different than yeah, I'm just, something's going on at home, right? To actually label it. Yeah. Or, you know, like a, a friend of mine said, by the way, I was chasing our puppy. He went left, I went right. And I, I tore the meniscus in my knee. I need some time off. You go, you know, we laugh about that and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Take two, three days. Don't worry about it, right? But if he said, you know what? I'm just overwhelmed. I'm just, I'm just, as Winston Churchill would say, the black dog is back and I need some time. We'd go, I kind of told you this was going to be a high pressure job. Are you telling me you're not tough enough, Ron? I mean, you're not up to, come on, you know? So you're right. The big question is, so how do I make it safe? Because here's another number for you. 90% of employees don't feel safe talking about it. 90%. So only one in 10 are, are feel confident enough or have a good enough relationship to say, you know what, Ron, I'm burned out, man. I'm just burned out. I, 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 I need a day. But then, but then if they're the outlier, and I'm just normalizing here, generalizing, but in a lot of cases, the outlier probably seems as the drama starter, the person who's oversharing and probably labeled as that in some cases, or would that be accurate? Uh, in a lot of leaders' worlds, yeah. And those are leaders that don't know their people and don't know their story. So we say, look, how do you, how do you, how do you make it safe? That's the big question, right? 
Nabila Ekstalaban is a wonder. You should have her on her pod, on your podcast, by the way. She's the chief people officer for Walmart Canada, and she introduces herself as a, a recovering workaholic. That because she was so driven to succeed, and she worked at Starbucks and you know a bunch of big brands, that her anxiety uh, levels were off the charts. Didn't sleep, didn't eat well, cost her her marriage. And she said, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Now, wait for the story, because I think this is the crux of what we're talking about. She said, I mean, I was sharing this story with a group of employees, and they said, well, easy for you to say that now. You're in the C-suite. You're the chief people officer of 100,000 people in Canada. Do you think you would have gotten where you are today had you not making those, made those sacrifices? And I loved her answer. She said, absolutely, I'd be here. It would have taken me longer. And knowing what I know now, I would make that trade. So one of the ways that you make it safe is you share your story. Look, everybody's been anxious. That's a normal, normal human emotion. And if you haven't ever been anxious at work, well, there's something seriously wrong with you or you're a liar or both, right? So the, the point is, is if you can find ways to share your story of times when you were overwhelmed and where you just, and how your boss understood that and made it possible. Once people say, oh, you mean you? Like you, really? Well, if you felt it, and I'm, then it's probably okay. And then the other thing that we tell leaders is, by the way, when people finally feel safe to talk to you about mental health, they don't want you to solve the problem. Like seriously, they, they, they just want you to do one thing and one thing only. What do you think that is? Listen. Absolutely. Because leaders go, okay, so I made it safe, and then they're going to come to me with their problems, and then I got to have a solution, and I can't write a prescription, and I don't have a couch, and say, you don't, do that. you don't have to have any of that. Just listen. And just say, hey, I know that's hard. I don't know exactly how that feels. I have felt like that, and I know it's hard. How can I help? Right. Now, the way that when you see somebody suffering and you want to make it safe, you don't come up and say, hey, Ron. I read this book, Anxiety at Work. You check all the boxes, man. <laughs> you are seriously anxious. Don't worry. I'm here to listen. It doesn't work like that, right? What you do is you say, look, um, I've noticed. You know what, Ron? I've just noticed that your level of excellence has just been slipping a little bit. How can I help? How can I help? I've noticed that you're never late, man. And all of a sudden, you're kind of showing up late. How can I help? So it's, I've noticed now, so we talked to counselor and he said, why is that a safe way to start the conversation? And they said, well, because when you say I've noticed, it gets interpreted as I care. Hmm. I've been paying attention. I've noticed I care. How can I help? So, you know, these little sort of, you know, call them tricks or hacks or suggestions, whatever, because I, again, back to, I, I was just doing this the other day. I said, how many of you have, have People on your team that are just killing it. Oh, yeah. They're just they never failed, always comes here. Yeah. And what do you do with those people on your team? They go, load them up. <laughs> you know? 100%. Because they never say no and they always get it done, right? I guarantee you they're your most anxious because they never want to disappoint you. 
and be really careful with that because you'll right. burn them out. Remember the days when company culture was defined by how many foosball tables and weekly happy hours there were? Today, employees expect more. That's why Empyrean empowers organizations to build a better culture by connecting employees to meaningful, life-enriching benefits. Benefits that allow your employees to be their best selves, both in and outside the workplace. Is your benefits function positively impacting company culture? Take Empyrean's online benefits maturity assessment to see how you measure up and where you can take a more strategic approach. A better workplace culture starts with benefits. So visit goempyrean.com to take the assessment and start building a better culture through benefits that actually matter. Empyrean, where real benefits live. You talked about being vulnerable first. Um, we had a, a guest, John Ferguson, he's a CHRO at NASCAR. And I love the verbiage and the labeling to that. He said, leaders need to lower the waterline first. I love that he, he used that. And, and you're talking about humanizing, you know, a leader because we're seen as these tough leaders and who somehow have figured life out. And so what you're saying is, look, you need to connect through your own vulnerability to the person in front of you. Yeah. Listen, it comes back to stories, right? Just share your story. Right. Right. Share your story. Same. Right. Because everyone's no, story's got ups and downs. Exactly. Listen, I, I remember, um, when Adrian and I started uh, talking about going out on our own, you know, we work for a bigger company and, and it was a good gig. You know, they paid us well, all kinds of safety nets going out on your own. That's scary. I mean, it's really scary. And I remember it was my wife said, Hey, let's go for a walk. I said, ah, geez, I don't know if I got time, you know, I'm doing all of this. go for a walk. And she said, just look, you are miserable. And one of the tips she gave me, she said, hey, you got to stop yelling in the shower. You're scaring the kids. <laughs> you know, you, you have your, and you replay those conversations and, you know, or worse is when you're in the car and you end up going, you know, 90 miles an hour in a school zone because you're just so crazy. And we went for a walk and she said, you, you know what, Jess, um, I don't care what we do going forward. I'm telling you, we're not doing this anymore. Like you, you are leaving just figure it out. And I don't care what we do, but we're not doing this. And so we did, we went in and it was really hard. You know, the company like didn't see it coming and was mad at us and couldn't get us out the door fast enough. And, and I, I remember coming back after that meeting and my wife gave me a big hug and said, welcome back. Yeah. So again, it's, it's priorities. I mean, we, we were doing really well, you know, we, written all these books and speaking all over the world and everything. We've got a, a great quote um, that we try to live by, you know, and it's, it goes like this. There's a guy named David O. McKay who said, no success in business can ever compensate for failure in your home. Right. Love that. And, you know, and it was it, that this is when you, you marry well, right? When she pulled me aside and said, look, stop, like, just stop. Um, I know you love the company. This we, we actually wrote an article about this. Did did very well, by the way, on, on LinkedIn. Is I, I know you love the company. A company can't love you back. And so you got to take your love somewhere else. They don't get you, they never will. And 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 that's not saying that they're not good people or they're bad people. In fact, the company we left is doing great <laughs> without us. They didn't, you know, I mean. 
you know, you have that sort of death wish. Well, when I leave, you'll regret it. You know, this is so silly, right? They're doing great. And, and the fact that they didn't get us, that's okay too. They get an, another way to do it that's just as good and just as effective. And, and it took us a long time to come to grips with that. But, you know, th this idea of mental health is, yeah, you got to figure it out. That's why I'm a big fan of rituals. And, and we talk about that a lot in the, in the book, you know, your gratitude stone, your gratitude journal. I mean, we have eight strategies in dealing with anxiety. The eighth strategy is gratitude, right? Um, you can't be in a state of gratitude and a state of anxiety at the same time. So what are you doing to keep yourself in a, in a healthy mental place? Are you, are you saying your prayers? Are you reading your scriptures? Are you going for walks? Are you surrounding yourself with good people? Are you writing in a journal? Uh, we have a, a podcast, Anxiety at Work, and we always ask our guests, what are some of the things you do to keep yourself mentally, you know, mentally, mentally healthy? And, and a lot of the things I just mentioned are, are on the list. One of my favorites was one of the, one of our guests says, I multitask. I go, what? That would, I would think your anxiety and your stress would go. Right. She goes, when I'm multitasking, I'm so in the weeds. I don't have time to be anxious. That works for her. And I went, good for you. You figured it out. You know, is that, a, is that, a, is that look, as I hear that, I feel the same way you probably did. It's, is that a, a coping mechanism? Are you just blocking it out versus dealing with it. Although I guess everything else is too. If I, if I'm going to write in a journal, I'm blocking out that anxious feeling because I'm, I'm writing my gratitude about my day. And so it, maybe it's just a, I guess it is just a coping strategy. Right? They're all coping mechanisms. right? right. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's really interesting. I mm -hmm. read a wonderful book called uh, think like a monk by Jay Shetty. A great book. In fact, Jay Shetty endorsed leading with gratitude. So we're, we're grateful for that. And he said, what's your mantra? You know, monks have mantras. And so when you wake up in the morning and your feet touch the ground, what's your mantra? And, and I, I thought, you know, that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop a mantra. Because there are days, you know, I mean, different countries, different time zones, different things. And it wears you out, you know. And there, there are those mornings when you kind of go, I'm not sure I really want to get out of bed, you know. And, of course, you have to. So how do you trick yourself to get out of bed? So the, my mantra is, be, is very simple. It's be kind be grateful and be of service. And if I can go through the day and, and be kind and, and express gratitude with my little stones or thank you cards or whatever it is, and I've served somebody, that's a good day. That's a good day. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about something similar. <clears throat> I was traveling the other day and I, I think energy is a big thing. And I think if you're doing those three things, you're going to give off some pretty great energy. And I was just, thinking about my day as I was traveling through an airport and the amount of people I was making purposely making eye contact with and smiling. And, right. And I was just yeah. like, there's not a lot of people do that, you know, and, and sometimes it's an awkward, you know, you, you cross eyes and lock eyes and it's awkward. And I, and, and I had, I was noticing my own behavior of, of locking eyes, acknowledging and smiling. And, and I thought not only would it bring a smile to someone's face 99% of the time, but it was giving me energy. It was, it was making me feel great. So I'm, I'm reading a wonderful book by, by a guy named uh, Arthur Brooks. Listen to his podcast. He's brilliant. He, he teaches a course at the Harvard School, um, at Harvard uh, College on happiness. I mean, come on. And it's, by the way, the most popular course uh, at Harvard. And he writes in his book, Love Your Enemies, uh, a chapter on a study was done in 1993 about forcing a smile, said, you know, and it's a wonderful quote by Thich Nhat Hanh who says, sometimes 
joy is the source of your smile. But sometimes your smile is the source of your joy. And, and these studies they did, they, they made people watch videos and stuff. And they, they said, and you have to smile, even if you don't feel like it. And they measured all the endorphins and stuff like that. Even when it was a fake smile, it had a positive impact. Um, this, this young woman that's in my congregation, she said, oh, yeah, that's laugh yoga. I went, what? She goes, there are laugh yoga classes where you sit together and, you, and they make you laugh. And at first, it's the last thing you want to do. And it's fake. And she said, and five minutes in, everybody's laughing hysterically and everybody feels great. So I, I love your forced smile. Now, if you want to have some even more fun with that, and again, this is a podcast, but I am obviously follically challenged, right? And so there are so many young people that have just fabulous hair, you know, whether it's the dreadlocks or the extensions and all kinds of stuff. You want to cheer somebody up, and I do this all the time, is I'll say, hey, excuse me. And they go, yes, you go, great hair. And they, <laughs> and they laugh, and they laugh. Exactly that's the reaction. And you know what? They go, thanks. Because, you know, clearly when they've got all this stuff, they've, they've, they've spent hours putting that thing right. together. Right? And they say, listen, if I ever get cancer and, and I want somebody to donate their hair, can I have yours? <laughs> you know, and, 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 and they'll laugh. It's a simple little thing. Right. Hey, great hair. You know, another one is, it's really funny. I said, you know what, can I, can I just tell you something really quick? And usually if they're in the service industry, it's like a complaint. So you just see them bracing themselves, right? Can I, can I tell you something really quick? Go, yes. What is it, sir? I go, you've got a great smile. And they, they smiled big and said, oh, you really do. Don't, don't waste it. And they go, oh, thank you so much. And then you move on. It takes you a matter of seconds. Uh, last story on hair. I, I had to catch a really early flight. And so I'm calling the Uber and, you know, it's like four o'clock in the morning. And the guy at the desk, I mean, that's the shift nobody wants, right? And he's got these, this great hair, this, all these extensions and stuff. I mean, he looks like, you know, a rock star. And he doesn't want to be there. And I didn't want to have to get up that early. I had to. And I said, hey, I wonder if you could help me just really quick. I want to make sure I get the address right. It was a hotel and kind of a funky address. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's it. He'll get you there. I said, just one last thing. He said, yeah. I said, man, that's great hair. And he just started laughing. He goes, thanks, man. I needed that. I said, but seriously, you worked hard at that. He goes, every day, baby. This is, this, 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 this is my artwork. Well, not only did it cheer up his day and cheer up my day, he came around the counter and made sure that the Uber guy found me. You right, know, right. So, I mean, again, that ripple effect. Mm. And it costs you nothing. It costs you absolutely nothing. Is that one of the concepts in the book, Chester, is just, just as a leader, because we have to lead this, it's just these simple, small smile, compliment someone's smile, like these small little movements, which have massive impacts. Yeah, I, I, I like to call them random acts of kindness. You know, we did a study, it was another book we wrote called um, The Best Team Wins. We did a study of the NASA space station. Um, the, the commander of the International Space Station um, whose name just popped out of my head. Anyway, he's Canadian. So we, Adrian, I love him because he's Canadian. And they had the most successful three months ever. And they asked him, well, what was the difference in the debrief? I mean, he said, look, we trained for 12 years. Uh, Chris Hatfield is his name. Uh, he said, I think the difference was because, you know, three cosmonauts, two astronauts, the Canadian, right? He said, we had an unwritten rule. And the unwritten rule was we had to perform a random act of kindness 
for each other every day, every astronaut. Now, we, they, they didn't have a chart with little stars on it, although that would have been cool, right? Um, he, he said, and, and what's the message? Little random acts of kindness. The message is, hey, I, I'm paying attention. I care about you. You're on my team. I'm cheering for you. I love you, right? Little random acts of kindness. Now, he said, what, what was the ripple effect? Never had a heated argument. Back to Dalton Irene. Never raised their voices. We never had a heated argument. We never screamed and yelled at each other. Nobody had hurt feelings. It was just all about the mission, get the job done. Hey, we're all in this together. A simple random act of kindness. Right, right. And I, to be honest, I love that it's not tracked because then it then it seems yeah. transactional. It seems forced, you know? Right. I, I, I had read a book. Uh, I took my kids to a, a place called the Discovery Center and there was this beautiful white book and it's, it was called Joyful. Have you heard of that book? No. Excellent. It actually, it, it's very similar to what we're talking about. It, 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 it basically challenges, challenges some mental health, um, um, you know, some of the theory on mental health. And basically what it says, Chester, is that, you know, there's different aspects that affect your mental health, i.e. if someone smiles at you, if you see a bright color, if you, if you see a, a little baby laughing, a rainbow, in those moments, it's pretty hard to be down. And you know, we loved it, my real estate company. Um, we, from there, picked 12 building block bright colors and have started to, we own multi-unit workforce housing, started to paint the colors of the doors inside these inside the buildings, the exterior door in the hallway, very bright colors just yeah. to make, give you a pop, you know? And so I really believe in that. I think that, that your exterior has a huge impact, but the, the message that I'm hearing you say is that <clears throat> with leaders, we don't, we must, I think a lot of leaders take that for granted. How, how, how um, impactful a smile, a compliment you know, those random acts of kindness go. I think it's just like, look, we're here for business, get in business, and then I'm gone. You know, I, I just think we, that's how you change the world. You know, that it's these small rack acts of kindness. Yeah, and, and, and I would admonish the listeners, you know, every now and again, you get an impulse, inspiration. You know, I'm, 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 I'm very religious. I, I, I think it's my God talking to me that says, hey, do something nice. Just do it. And often we go, no, 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 it'll be awkward. It'll be weird. And I have to tell you, yesterday it happened to me. I'm on this interfaith council in my town. So we were meeting at one of the churches. And I'd never been to this church before. I mean, I knew it well. I'd just never been inside. We've lived in our town for, you know, 30 years. And as I'm looking for the entrance and going around, there's this old car. And clearly this couple is living in that car. And I, I don't know how they got on that street or, or what the deal was. And I took note of it and I walked by and there was a little voice that said, just do something nice. Right. And I remember thinking, I know I've got 20 bucks in my wallet. And I turned around and I said, Hey, I was wondering, can I help? And I passed him 20 bucks. And he looked at me and I'm telling you, Ronnie goes, why? Like literally he said, wow, thank you so much. I love you, man. <laughs> I love you, man. Now, think about that for a minute. Right. When was the last time you could have that kind of impact on somebody for 20 bucks? Mm. And I remember yeah, thinking absolutely. as I walked away, I remember just saying a little prayer of thanks. Thank you. Thank you for that little prompt. Well, we had Canadian Thanksgiving uh, last weekend that just passed. And 
you know, this is interesting because I think the feeling of that uh, for younger people is confusing. And my story is my daughter, Georgia, who's six, she has this big dollhouse and then she got a second dollhouse. It was like, there was a Barbie dollhouse and then she got this LOL doll ball, bar, um, dollhouse. She had two in a room. And I said, you know, gee, I think we should find someone to give that one of your dollhouses to. And of course, right away, like, whoa, daddy, whoa, a lot of Barbies are going in there. I don't know. I don't like this. And I said, you know, <laughs> Georgia, one of the beauties of life, one of the ways to fill your um, soul is to make other people feel good. And I think we should find a family and, and give that dollhouse to them. And we talked a lot about this. There was a lot of up, you know, weeks that were leading up to this. And we found a family through a group called Adsom House, where it's um, typically um, abused women that are, uh, that they shelter. And there was a young lady that had four kids. And just on Sunday, Monday, actually, uh, three days ago, we took this dollhouse to the house. And I and my daughter, we talked a lot about it. And she started to get excited to tell people what she was going to do. And then she was like, well, what do you think the, the girls will think? And I said, well, you just see what how those little girls feel. And, and of course, the girls were smiling ear to ear. Oh, my God, is this ours? Do we get this? And my daughter, I could just see this registering like this. Can It was a little confusing for her. It was it was should I do I feel good about this? Wow, this is kind of good. It was really interesting watching a six year old digest this in real time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what a great life lesson. Yeah. You yeah. know, hey, there's people out there that, you know, it, it, it's so interesting. Like, you know, we, we write business books and Adrian and I are always very careful. You know, hey, you should read uh, like Leading with Gratitude for Families. You go, no, we got no credibility in that space. You know, nobody's going to nobody's going to buy a book from Gossig and Elton on, on, you know, how to be nice to your kids or whatever. We almost end every book. In fact, most of our books, we say, by the way, these principles, take them home. Leading with gratitude. I mean, we interviewed Ken Chenault. He just retired as the CEO of American Express, one of the great leaders in American Express history. You know, um, uh, Alan Mulally, who saved the Ford Motor Company, right, during the recession in the, in the 2000s, 2008 to 2010. They all said, you know what, this is the way we lead and this is the way we live. We, we absolutely practice this with our families. So one of our, our great little ending lines that we love to use is say, by the way, you lead with gratitude. You'll be a better leader. You'll get superior results. No doubt about it. It's not just a better way to lead. It's a better way to live. Don't forget to take it home. How are you doing this with your kids? How are you doing this with your spouse? When was the last time you wrote a love letter to your spouse? When was the last time you thanked a teacher or a coach or your minister? You know? That little bit of, of gratitude goes a long way. And, you know, it, it's so interesting. I, I, I get, I, I'll get some pushback. We were doing this thing over the weekend. And it was this big panel and it was too many people on the panel and it was too long. But other than that, it was a great, it was, it was a great webinar. And um, we were talking about this and, and I, and I talked about the spiritual side. I said, you know, people need to connect spiritually. And I said, look, I, I don't mean that, you know, which church do you go to or discipline or what scriptures do you read? I, if you do that, great. That's what I do. And it works for me. I said, people want to connect spiritually. In, in Japan, they talk about forest bathing, where they walk through the forest and they just connect with nature and it replenishes their soul. 
I said, you know, even even my friends that are diehard atheists, you know, we will sit on the dock on a clear night and look up at the stars and I'll nudge them and go, seriously, like you, you, this doesn't come on. <laughs> um, I've got a friend who's who's uh, has a really interesting family background. Anyway, she's quite an artist. And she said, you know, my father died an atheist. My brother died an atheist. And I want to write a poem that says two atheists meet in heaven. What do they say to each other? <laughs> <laughs> and so you can joke and you can laugh about it. I honestly think that, you know, don't forget, call it the emotional side, call it the spiritual side. Um, there, One of the things that helps me with my mental health and it helps me be a better father, a better husband, you know, a better neighbor, is I believe that there's a power greater than I am right. and that I can connect with it and that I am never alone. And that is such an important lesson for anxiety whether you're a leader, a coworker, or a friend, that if you know somebody that's suffering is that they are not alone and that you are there for them and you will listen. You don't know exactly what they're going through. It doesn't matter. Just that they are not alone. Because when we retreat by ourselves and we start going down that rabbit hole, that's when it gets not just worse, it gets dangerous. Mm. And so whether you're connecting through your forest bathing or your meditation your, your philosophy or your faith or the church you go to or the community that's around you. That's an important emotional, spiritual thing to tap into. And the best leaders do it. And they're not preachy about it. They just understand it. And they go, look, there's a spiritual sign. It's what makes us different and what makes us want to come together and to, and to be kind and to be grateful and to be of service. And when you get that, in, in whether it's at work, at home, or in your community, Everything gets better. I promise you, everything gets better. I feel like it's a big mic drop after that, by the way. I was thinking like, you know, to scale this, right? Because it's one thing for me to smile at coworkers and ask them how they're doing. And maybe this is talked about in the book. Um, is to scale it, is it to talk about the impact and to encourage it? You know, I was reading an article and it's, this is just, I don't even know the magazine. I, I sometimes take pictures of great articles and I send it to my children. I have email accounts for all my children in the future. And so Georgia James Lovett, I'll give her the password when she's 18. So I send pictures and videos <laughs> and thoughts. And so the article is titled, The Smallest Things Will Make You Happy. And a few things I'll just read out. Uh, greet a stranger in an elevator. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Imagine you've lost something or someone you love. And that's probably for gratitude to feel feel grateful. It sounds aggressive, but I, I understand it. Um, knock off a menial task. Find little things that make you go, wow. I love that. Daydream about having superpowers. Um, I like that one. <laughs> yeah, it's got a couple other strategies. I guess my question is, should we be teaching why we're doing things, encouraging others to do it? Is that the scale? Is that how we scale versus just hoping someone picks up on it and repeats it? Yeah. So how did my father scale it through our family? I mean, it, it, the way he lived his life. And hopefully the way I'm living my life is going to help it scale through my kids. It's the same in business. You know, if, if I act that way and I'm the leader, I give everybody else permission to do the same. One of the great things, uh, conversations with Alan Mulally, I just got such a kick out of. He said, you know, it's all about culture and it's all about people. And it always will be. And he said, you set the parameters you talk about it, you teach it, you model it. And then, and, and he, I love this. He says, I've never had to fire anybody. He said, we, we, we had a CFO, guy was brilliant. 
problem was he treated people like crap. And so I went to him and I said, listen, you're brilliant. You're more than capable. We're lucky to have you. The thing is, is that's not our culture anymore. We don't treat people like crap. You can't, you can't be yelling. You can't be dressing people down in, in public. And he says, now look, so this is where, where we're going. And I want you to come with us. Now, if you can't do it, this is where it's brilliant, right? If you can't do it, that's okay. I'll still love you and I'll wish you well. Right. In other words, you can't work here, you know? And he says, and I'll give you two months to figure it out. Right. And he said, and, and, and the guy did. And he said, and he came to me two months later and I check in with him. How you doing? How you doing? And he said, you know what, Alan? I, I just can't do it. He said, I know. And that's okay. Now, what if he had a came back? as like the basketball coaches said, but, but let me tell you, I communicate to people and how they want to be communicated to. He would have just said, but not here. You can't, unfortunately, yeah. right? You know, one of the great uh, legendary basketball coaches of all time, John Wooden. I remember watching John Wooden coach UCLA when I was a kid, because I played a lot of basketball as a kid. That was my, I was a basketball Jones. That's all I cared about. He rarely got up. If you if you watch film from UCLA games, you know, Bill Walton and Lou Elsinder and all the great players that he had playing for him. It was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I know you know that. Anyway, yep. um, he never got out of his chair. He rarely called timeout. I mean, he coached them up. They know what they were doing. They, do you ever remember a picture of John Wooden jumping up and screaming at one of his players? I, there, there are no photos of that. It never happened in practice. Maybe, right? Maybe that's where you know you got it off. Um, yeah, I mean, look, decide the team you want. You hire to fit. You set the parameters. You model the behavior. You talk about it all the time. And when there's somebody that doesn't fit, take care of it. Because when you've when you've hired and, and we we've all made bad hires, and you've got a jerk on your team, the the team blames the jerk until it goes on too long and then they blame you because you could have taken care of the jerk and you didn't. That's right. So, I mean, we're off on a bit of a tangent here, but you know, Agreed. decide the culture you want. You may not want a culture of gratitude and that's okay. I'll never work for you. And you know what? That's probably a good thing, right? Right. But others will, they'll, they'll lean into it. They'll say, that's, I don't Absolutely. want this. this you for me. I agree. I think you lean in, you make your decision because otherwise you're going to cause anxiety and confusion or confusion, which is anxiety, right? Spot on. Um, what, what's the next big topic coming? What are you seeing, Chester? If you were going to write a book tomorrow, what is the topic? What's the headline of that book? You know, we're struggling with that one right now. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what's, what's, what's interesting is um, people are dealing a lot with transition. You know, and, and right from early to late, right? Uh, transitioning out of university, um, into your first job, your first promotion. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, I'm the tail end of the baby boomers. We're, we're all supposed to retire and do what? You know, and do what? Well, we so, could use a few of you at some of these workforce frontline positions, which we're, we're, we, we can't find people. So if you don't mind, get your friends to come back and do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've been working on my pitch. Can I biggie size that for you, sir? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's, um, and, and so I, I think, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in, in transition to what's next. You know, uh, we're doing a lot of work with DE&I. And it's interesting that, you know, you got these young startups, all these really smart young people in these tech companies, and they've got a lot of diversity of thought and maybe, you know, gender and race and so on. You know, we need the diversity in generations. Like, where, where are the gray hairs in the room that can help you walk through this stuff? 
Oh, oh, it's all new. It's all exciting. He said, yeah, you know what? Life is life. You need a couple of gray hairs in the room or no hairs, you know, as the, as the, as the case may be to, to help you through that. I think there's, there's a big responsibility there in helping with transition, mentoring. You know, one of the things that Adrian and I are both doing right now that gives us great satisfaction is executive coaching. How do you walk people through? How do, how do we make sure that you're not just a better leader, you're a better person? And so I think there's a lot of work to be done there. So what's the title? I, I don't know. I don't know what the title is. I, th th that's, that's a lot. We're, we're figuring it out. And um, I'll let you know when, when, when we get a publisher. <laughs> well, Chester, look, uh, one, obviously keep doing what you're doing. I, and I said this, I think before we started, but the world needs more Chester Elton in the, in the, in, 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 it needs more in the world. We need more of you in our life. I think you're just a positive force. And um, obviously, you know, even the color you have on for those who are listening, <laughs> Chester has bright orange glasses with a bright orange shirt. I mean, that is giving me energy. It's, it's great. And so um, obviously you're very intentional about what you do on a daily basis. And so that's yeah. wonderful. And, and I want to thank your father uh, and your mother who obviously uh, had a huge impact in who you are today. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're very, very kind. And, and thank you for giving me your platform. You know, you reach a lot of people and it's a message, like you say, I don't think you can hear it too often. You know, I, I don't think you can hear it too much. Um, we're, you know, nations are divided, you know, people are divided and we need, we need more kindness in the world. We need more just, gratitude. Just saying this too earlier, you know, the world seems to be more accepting, um, but more critical. This is weird. You know, we accept yeah. all these different things that are happening, but we're way more critical online. And I, know, it's, I you know, I, it was a great article I was reading. The guy says, uh, so we need more tolerance. He goes, boy, that's a pretty low bar. You know, I mean, if you said uh, my wife tolerates me, well, you'd immediately go to counseling. <laughs> you know, right. this, my my employees tolerate me. They go, mm. come on, we, we've got to get to, to to you know the international space station, right? Right. Where it says, look, you're on my team. I'm cheering for you. Love you it. matter to me. I'm going to serve you. And the message is, I love you. And we 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 need more. We need more gratitude. We need more love. We just need to be kind to each other. And and when we know each other's stories, I think it's easier to be kind. Couldn't agree more. Chester, thanks for joining. Thanks for taking the time and always great to see you. You too, Ron. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. For more information about Chester and his books and work, please follow him on LinkedIn or go to chesterelton.com. C-H-E-S-T-E-R-E-L-T-O-N.com. To learn more about our books or the Scaling Culture Masterclass, please go to scalingculture.org. And to learn more about the sponsor of this episode, Empyrean, please go to goempyrean.com. So it's G-O-E-M-P-Y-R-E-A-N.com. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a comment and share the podcast with one of your friends or colleagues. We'll be back soon with another incredible guest.